Welcome back to another In Between episode. As we continue to celebrate Nexus PMG's seven-year anniversary, today I have the great pleasure of interviewing Ben Hubbard, CEO and co-founder. Listen to Ben share his story of Nexus PMG's early beginnings to where we are today. And now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of our seven-year anniversary recap. I'm Raj Daniels, and today I have the pleasure of having our CEO, Ben Hubbard, on the show. Ben, how are you doing today? Doing well, Raj. Happy to be back since episode one. (laughs) It's been a while, hasn't it? It has. It has. It has. So, Ben, then you know I like to open this show by asking the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself... What would it be? You know, there's a couple things that came to mind when uh, when I knew I was going to answer this question. Um, you know, one is a lot of people probably don't realize I actually come from a heavily uh, heavy in, uh, international background. So I was actually born in a small town northwest of London in England. My father is English, uh, and I have uh, a family. Uh, my grandparents divorced when my dad was young. They uh, his father moved to South Africa, so I have a large presence of family in South Africa and a large presence over in England. So I actually grew up in a pretty diverse international family traveling around the world. And I think that was a big part of what shaped kind of my desire to go back overseas when I graduated college with Fleur and my kind of view on the world, if you will, relative to kind of how I look at international cultures and my desire to explore international cultures and my time spent living in Saudi Arabia and Mongolia and Korea and all these places, I think was birthed out of that kind of international exposure at a young age. So I don't know if a lot of people probably know that about me. Well, I'm sure they don't, but I'd be remiss not to ask you about your football slash soccer career. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's another, that's another one. Uh, so I was uh, an avid football slash soccer player, depending on what part of the uh, globe you're on. Uh, and I played for uh, played for the Olympic development team for a number of years. And then when I moved to Texas, I played for a club team here that uh, that was uh, pretty prominent and actually, um, you know, competed in the Dallas Cup and won some world titles uh, and then had some full ride scholarships uh, and played for the under 20 U.S. national team for a while. Uh, had a su- pretty severe injury that ended up... Um, kind of altering my path and probably better for the better anyway. Uh, but uh, enjoyed playing for most of my life and uh, was a pretty pretty decent player up until that injury, which was uh, pretty catastrophic and kind of made me realize it's time to go use my brain, not my feet. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that. And you know, since you mentioned Floor, take the audience back. Seven years ago, where are you? What are you doing? And how does Nexus come to life? So uh, Roshan, Paul, and myself are sitting in a man camp in the middle of the uh, Ras Acher Desert in northeastern side of Saudi Arabia. Uh, we were over there working on a high-profile mega project that was an alumina refinery. Uh, it was about a $10.3 billion facility, 50,000 craft at peak, which was pretty insane for a project. Um, and the three of us actually worked at what they call the PMC. So we were kind of overseeing the integration of all these sub-projects. And for most sub-projects on a project, you know, they're they're moderate in size, but each of these sub-projects were bigger than most world's biggest projects to begin with. So you had a smelter project that was $4 billion, which Bechtel was overseeing. And you had a rolling mill project, which was $2 billion, which Samsung was overseeing. And you had 
integrated infrastructure project, which was 1.6 billion that Fluor was overseeing. So you had all these world-class EPCs with all these sub-projects, which were in and of themselves mega projects. And then the PMC, which is where we sat, was responsible for integrating all of this and tracking the cost, the schedule, making sure that the the pieces were tying together and then reporting that information up to uh, to the you know the key stakeholders and uh, you know the the client and then ine- inevitably the investors um, and that was kind of our first exposure into kind of understanding the way that uh, the investment community if you will kind of looks and at projects uh, that are ongoing and kind of what their expectations are. Um, and we got a lot of first hands-on experience in evaluating the risk profile of that project, running Monte Carlo simulations to try to understand what the likely outcomes would be, you know, what the risks were of the interfaces. So if the rolling mill was going to be late, what consequence did that have on the refinery, which had consequences on certain roads being constructed in that area? And so we really got a good understanding of kind of the the risk management process. And so as that project came to an end, and I'll say it was 50% the desire to leave the Middle East because we'd been there living in a man camp for many years. And for me specifically, I, I right before that, I lived in a, in a man camp in the South Gobi deserts of Mongolia, which I suspect will probably lead to you asking more questions than, <laughs> than anything else. But uh, but uh, And then the other idea was, is we had created this, um, this kind of technology concept within Fluor that really... Um, allowed us to streamline the efforts of managing that integration piece that I mentioned very, very efficiently. Um, we were very active users of of Excel. And when I say Excel, I don't just mean kind of, you know, you know, writing simple spreadsheets and t- visual basic code and macros and all sorts of stuff that, and then some software, um, that, you know, in, in Microsoft Access at that time. And so we got really good at streamlining our efforts and analyzing stuff, leveraging some of the s- tools we could build. So we came together, the three, I still remember it to this day, the three of us sitting in my office and uh, Roshan walks in, we'd been pitching the idea internally to each other about starting something together. Roshan walks in, something had happened that day. I don't remember exactly what it was. He was frustrated with some decision that was made in in the project he was overseeing or something. And he said, let's do it. I'm on board. Let's go. I want to do this. And so uh, we went through the process of kind of writing a little business plan in the evenings in our little, uh, in our little man camp trailers that we lived in. And, uh, and then Nexus was born. And in fact, something that the audience probably doesn't know is Nexus had very, I had a number of names prior to being called Nexus PMG. Uh, first one was Glen Meadows, which was terrible. Uh, and the second <laughs> one was HVH Group, Hubbard, Vonnie, Hammond, which my dad told us sounded like a car manufacturer, like the Ford HVH. So we dis- we diverted away from that one. And then Nexus came up while we were searching, which, you know, for those that don't know, Nexus kind of means the interconnection point between multiple things, right? And so we kind of saw ourselves as the bridge between the investment community technologies and so on. And so that's kind of how Nexus was born. We mobilized back to the US and uh, relocated to Dallas and and the rest is history. So you mentioned the bridge and what Nexus means. When you, Paul and Roshan sat down, what was the big picture for Nexus? What did you envision for Nexus? You know, orig- I, I would be lying if I said uh, we would be where we are today because <laughs> it's just not the truth. What we thought was we would be a, you know, a leading ad- advisory firm, actually more to the engineering procurement construction industry, evaluating the health of projects that were ongoing uh, and doing audits on those projects. And that kind of played off nicely of what we were overseeing when we were at Fluor in the Middle East was, you know, assessing where every where a project is at any point in time and what the risks are what we didn't realize was that 
that is actually incredibly difficult to sell to EPCs because the expectation is that their teams and their own internal groups are doing that themselves. So it's kind of the, why would I pay you to do something my people are supposed to be doing? So we had to pivot that strategy a little bit and say, okay, well, who really can benefit from this same skill set, but probably doesn't have that expertise or that expectation. And that's where the the somewhat exposure that we had to the investment community became a priority. We said, we need to pivot this strategy to more of the investors uh, because they rely on advisors constantly to do this type of work. And so um, once we started gaining ground, it took time. Once we started gaining ground with investors and, and leveraging some of the, the skill sets that we had in-house and you know, one investor logo became two and two became four. And then once you weren't trading off of your own individual resumes, but your company's experience, that's when we really started seeing the growth. Um, and then I would say the big the big turning point for us was about three years ago when we decided to go all in on the sustainability uh, ESG sector. Most of the work we had done just coincidentally had been in that sector anyway, about 95% wood pellet production, biomass. It was things that a lot of other people didn't understand or were ignoring. So we took it on and said, let's figure it out. Uh, and you know, with that pivot, we rebranded the business, which I think we, we talked about on the first podcast and, and really launched and said, we're going all in. We're going to stand behind this. This is going to be our, our, our mission and our vision and our purpose as a business. We are going to better this planet and we're going to do it through the skill sets that we have. And, and so that is probably when we really truly understood what Nexus was going to be in the future and where we are today is, is a, you know, following that vision. So you mentioned, you know, figuring it out along the way. And you also mentioned pivoting along the way. And you brought up the zero carbon, low carbon initiatives. So it's late 2018, early 2019. Why such a strong pivot to zero carbon, low carbon initiatives when you could have continued doing what you were doing, addressing you know the fossil fuel markets, the metals and mining markets, et cetera, but you decided to go, you and the team decided to go all in on this. Why? Two reasons. One, um, you know, I would be lying if I didn't admit that you know, we, we believed it was the best thing from a business perspective. We could really see where these markets were going seven years ago, even to in the early days when we were working on these projects. We could see where the money was starting to pour into. We could see, you know, even just things like the trends of the environmental sustainability governance, ESG movement, the amount of companies that were moving in that direction, talking about those types of things. Um, how many projects that were starting to come to us to review as a percentage of the total was increasing year after year as a, uh, you know, for, for things in this sector. Um, so from a business perspective, we felt like if we can become the, the company that is known as the elite advisor and go-to firm in these market segments before anybody else really can catch up to our market share, then then nobody can beat us. Because if we've done 20 anaerobic digestion facilities and 15 wood pellet projects before anybody's done one or two, then when we compete against our peers to go after these this type of work, we'll just be mountains ahead of everybody else. So from a business perspective, we felt like it was really the right strategic position. And then it, and then the second piece of that was it was something to be proud of. We were really excited about it. It's something that, uh, you know, the founders and, and even most of our employees, if not all of them, really stand behind. Um, we felt like, you know, if you can make an impact and it's a good business decision, why wouldn't you do that? And so we were really, we were really excited about, you know, standing behind the brand uh, and really living up to stuff that was really at the heart, at our, the heart of our kind of 
conscious, if you will, as individuals, and then just being bold enough to say, you know what, regardless of where this goes, let's stand behind it as individuals. And as individuals, we ref- you know, we represent our company. And if our company company represents the same thing, then we'll feel pretty strongly about our offering in the marketplace and then we can back it up with our core values. And so that's kind of the, the two-headed monster that that allowed us to feel confident in doing what we did. And, you know, as a leader, as the CEO of the company, when you decided to make that move, what kind of feedback or reaction, the responses that you get from some of your peers that were outside of Nexus? You know, I it's interesting because I I never once felt like any ounce of concern or fear that this was the wrong decision. Um, my biggest stress point was actually how are we going to convey to some of our existing clients that rely on us for our work in oil and gas or mining and metals that we're not going to support those them or those projects anymore? Um, the interesting thing that when I when the feedback I got as I had those conversations was, oh yeah, by the way, we're launching an ESV fund of ourselves, or we're launching, we're planning to divest and start moving into those sectors as well. So we'll call you. It, it, the reaction I expected was kind of like, oh, okay, well you know, fine, we'll go find somebody else or, you know, you know, something a little with a little bit more of an animosity driven tone of kind of like, well, thanks a lot. You know, couldn't you given us more heads up or blah, blah, blah. But the reality is, is they, they kind of responded with, yep, we get it. We're doing the same thing. So it was an interesting, uh, an interesting feedback loop to find out that it was a validation effort from the feedback more than it was, uh, uh, you know, a kind of a confrontation element. So it was, it was really interesting to see how that transpired. It's interesting to hear. And, you know, you mentioned being first or being able to garner some market share ahead of time. And it must be an interesting feeling now to almost feel like you're looking around the corner and now other people are catching up to where you are. Yeah, there's a lot of businesses launching their sustainability subsidiaries and things of that nature. Um, I do think our business model is a little is pretty actually quite dramatically different than most um, because we're not what I would call a traditional advisor. We don't just kind of advise and walk away. We're very relationship focused, but we're also kind of the intersect or the nexus, if you will, between the development community, and the investor community. So we're much more hands-on with protecting the downside risk of the investment community and quite frankly, the developers, because we we get actively involved in designing these facilities and helping to construct these facilities. And we build their financial models and we look at the markets and we introduce our clients to funds that are better suited to potentially provide them capital. And so we're just way more hands-on than just kind of being hired for eight weeks, look at something, write a report, walk away and let us, you know, let it call us when you need us again. So I think that makes us a little bit unique. Um, And that's kind of what excites me about our future is just knowing that it's really hard to replicate that business model um, just simply because of the the expertise that we've been able to build over the years. It would would take quite a while to rebuild that expertise. So that's kind of how we look at it. So before we get to the future, what are some of the valuable lessons you've learned along the way? Um, culture is one that you probably saw me write about recently on our seven-year journey. Um, you know, one thing that you, as a CEO, that is, I could be very honest and very transparent about is I didn't know what a CEO was. I didn't even know what my responsibility was as a CEO. And at first it was the three of us or five of us. And, you know, as you can call yourself a CEO, but it's really nothing more than a title on a business card just to elevate yourself. But in today's environment where we have dozens and dozens of employees and stuff, my I'm starting to find my role um, and I'm starting to try to understand what 
what it means to be a CEO. And so for me, learning how to manage the culture of a business and the HR side of things relative to how do we find the right people that want to to align with our our core values in this, but also have the skill sets we need? How do we make sure that the culture across multiple offices that are geographically diverse is the same? And and there's not, you know, you don't have like three different companies within one just because they're geographically dispersed. Um, how do you how do you make sure that, you know, the you know, I'll give you an example. Like when people, if people walk into our office that we just don't have a bunch of people, you know, drinking water bottles and throwing plastic in the trash when we're out here preaching, you know, sustainability and and doing our part, but we're not doing it as individuals. So all the little nuanced details of how to manage a company culture and make sure that your core values exist across the company, um, as well as making sure that your outward facing brand isn't just, you know, greenwashed or just, uh, you know, something you say on a piece of paper or outward facing, but you really stand behind it. So for me, that's been a really interesting uh, journey to try to figure out how to navigate those waters and kind of learn it on the fly, if you will, because it's just something I think you learn when you get into that leadership role with lots of folks that are depending on you. Well, I saw a video of you this morning drinking cricket powder on LinkedIn. So I think you're. <laughs> I'm, I think you're... <laughs> I'm eating bugs. I'll do whatever it takes. Russians <laughs> over there composting and making hot sauce. It doesn't matter. We're we're in, baby. Let's do this. <laughs> so, speaking of managing company values, where do you see Nexus in the next five years? It's 2025. Celebrating. Let's do the math. What's that? 12 years in. What does Nexus look like in 2025 to you? Yeah, it's funny. Somebody asked me the other day, kind of, you know, what what do you what is the next big thing or what is your next evolution of the business? And I was really thinking about that because we have, you know, business plans and and we have five year visions and and I'll I'll speak to those. But some to some extent I was really reflecting on is we just gotta keep doing what we're doing. And sometimes I think a lot of business leaders and businesses overthink about, you know, having to do a million things at once. And and we've been victims of that is, you know, how many places, you know, stretching too thin, if you will. Um, But I think we just, we need to keep doing what we're doing. Um, One thing that makes us, you know, stand out, I believe is, is, uh, you know, really aligning with our clients to make sure that uh, it's, it's a, it's a give and take model. So one thing that we do is in our business development processes, we typically do a lot of work a reasonable amount of work for our potential clients without ever asking for anything. I'm a big fan of, I don't think you have to ask for something or do something with an expectation of receiving something because most people, if you demonstrate value, uh, good faith and goodwill, they want to work with you and they will reciprocate. So I think for us, it's just to constantly continue to build our brand identity. Um, This podcast is a great example of, of spreading the message. I really want to accelerate the bigger than us vision. And we got some really cool things that I know you know about, but our audience doesn't know about coming out um, that are a reflection of that. I really want to to really push the educational side and get um, more of a, a, a presence with the youth and make them aware that there are amazing things happening in the sustainability sector um, at the ground floor levels and that people are eating crickets, for example, and it's good for the environment. <laughs> and uh, so that's a big part. Uh, in 2025, I really hope that we've grown uh, to the point where um, I'll just say we're kind of a household name, if you will, relative to what we do. Um, I think we're looking to actively uh, start to invest more and more into these projects, some of our, our cash flows that we generate as a business so we can take more of an ownership stake. Um, I think we're looking to really expand our footprint uh, through some intellectual property that we're developing to make sure that we 
capture and leverage a lot of the data that we've gathered over the, the last several years uh, to really add uh, incremental value to our clients. And some of that will be open sourced as well. So we're going to provide a lot of really great information to make sure more projects have the tools they need to get off the ground and connect with the capital providers. So I think it's just keeping our foot on the accelerator and just making sure um, more of these projects can come to fruition by, you know, offering our skill sets, offering some of our tools, and then our uh, our kind of mission around the the media empire that we're trying to build around uh, the the podcast and some of the um, you know some of the original content we're writing and those types of things. So that's kind of where I see us in uh, 2025. Well, Ben, it's been great catching up with you, and I look forward to working shoulder to shoulder with you to accomplish Nexus's vision. I appreciate it, Raj, and. Uh, you know, I appreciate everything you're doing. This podcast is outstanding and I, uh, I've gotten a lot of really good feedback and to those listening that haven't been on the podcast, if you want to be on it, uh, I highly recommend you give a shout out to Raj because he's a great interviewer and you'll really enjoy it. It's a, it's a fun process. Appreciate it. While you're saying that it's btu at nexuspmg.com. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.